Hey folks, how we doing? Welcome to the stream. Just getting started here. Um, we had unfortunately a last second cancellation from David, so it's going to be just the two of us on this show, but it's still going to be great. Um, Jesse, how you doing? People want to. Um, people had a suggestion actually that at the start of the podcast we both say something so that the voices are made clear. Yeah, hopefully they're <laughs> clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if my voice is clear, I guess, you know, I was the one who really pushed for this particular topic. And uh, the way I thought of it is just that I feel like chess culture has evolved a lot imperceptibly in my lifetime, but that it's really changed in the last year and that I expect to really find myself pushed into an entirely new world. Uh, when I go and play what is like two weeks from now, you know, I'm going to play in Memorial Day in D.C., a big GM norm tournament. And um, uh, I don't know what to expect. And so I thought it would be interesting for me, for us to talk about what has changed. And then maybe somewhere down the line, we can kind of collate our experiences and see, you know, what it feel, how it feels different. Um going forward. Um, I'll just give an obvious example of how it definitely, I think is going to change, uh, that when I play in two weeks, I assume we're not shaking hands anymore. Right. We might actually be playing without masks. I don't know. That's still actually up in the air, but, um, the thing with handshakes, it might seem insignificant, but I have never played a classical game of chess without shaking hands first. Never. Never. It was like a sacrament before the game. Um, and it's a, I, I, you know, I did it since I was a kid, so I didn't think too much about it, but the more I did, I was like, right. I, with the handshake, you are showing respect to your opponent and to the game. And it's a beautiful ritual. And I remember becoming conscious of it just in the whole Topolov Kramnik scandal, whenever that was, when they refused to shake hands, I was scandalized. I was scandalized by it. So that's just a small way in which uh, the culture is going to change. Um, and, you know, when I was thinking about it, I think the obvious thing that you could, I could think of in terms of something important that's going to shift stuff around is just the idea that demographics are destiny. And, and that's kind of something you hear in political science, but I think it applies to any culture and you know, the demographics of chess have shifted wildly, you know, um, first, even before the pandemic, the game became much more international with especially China and India joining in. Um, but now we're going to get this huge influx of people. Uh, it's a real question for me of like how many women are now going to be playing. You know, and how is that going to change the culture of the game? Like, I never thought of chess as a bro culture, but it certainly was true that basically all of my interactions at tournaments were with dudes. Definitely just the way it was, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, if YouTube is any indication, then we should see higher uh, female attendees uh, for chess events. I saw, like, Levy posted a tweet where his, like, inner to chess video has like 25% uh -huh. female viewership, 
which for YouTube is pretty, pretty insane for a chess video. Well, that's funny because I uh, looked right before and uh, right before this podcast. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we had like 0.1% female viewership for our videos. (laughs) And now we are up to 3.6%, which is still like, it's startlingly low. Um, And if I was just to guesstimate like the amount of women at a given tournament, that's not a scholastic tournament, I would guess 2%. I mean, it's really low before the pandemic. Yeah. So it's just a question. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the participation rate is going to be like. I don't know who's going to come out of the woodwork. And another thing about it too, that's really obvious is a lot of people, including our very own DM Hokie, have just been playing chess online and they've never even been to a term. And so maybe, maybe the evolution of chess culture is precisely that we don't play in tournaments anymore. You know, that's just one of the many things um, that, that could change in, in the, in the coming years, I guess, but we're going to see it right now. Kosia is going to play in the national open, which is about a month from now. So we're both going to get a taste. You're going to get a taste of what this new world it's like, yeah. Do you think there will be a lot of new online players? Because I feel like there will be. I feel like a lot of players that so far have only played online are actually going to start attending events, and then we'll see some players like basically new that could be like pretty good and strong. And um, but yeah, never played like a real tournament before, right? And I mean, it's just terrifying the idea that you could have somebody who is either unrated or is very low rated and all of a sudden you know you're dealing with somebody who has a puzzle worth score of 50 and they're just, they're rated like 1700 dude and so you win nothing if you win and they win everything if they win it's yeah it's a terrifying situation and i assume that's going to happen and one of the changes that i i think is going to happen is that the level of the general level of play will be dramatically improved that's my guess we're going to see how true that is. But that's my guess. Interesting, because I, I would think maybe the opposite. I'm worried a lot of people are going to show up like completely out of form, having not played over the board chess in like a long time. Um, for me, especially part of my prep for Vegas has to be like playing over the board because I definitely feel very rusty when I'm away for like a couple of months. But <laughs> this is like, right, this is like insane. It feels like such a distant past that we were actually playing in person you know imagine guys like playing a chess game you're not allowed to like open up other tabs you're not allowed to even like have your phone with you anymore you're not even allowed to like talk to anyone you just gotta be silent for like four <laughs> to six hours i've always felt like it's like a long meditation almost because you're not talking to anyone the whole time basically you're just there with with your thoughts at the at the chessboard. so it's a really it's a really different experience well, absolutely. And I think for guys like us, no, we're not going to dramatically improve. <laughs> That's not where the improvement of the general pool of chess players is going to come from, right? It's going to come from these new players who either had a, a low rating or no rating before this whole thing happened. Um, I've definitely, you know, I probably as you as well, I've been, you've been, I, I'll just say I've been contacted through the pandemic by numerous players who are just beginning and are on some kind of incredible self-improvement quest. I mean, people who are stopping their lives for the most part to play chess, you know, 
And so, yeah, that's a huge part of the game. And some of them have made big progress, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Actually, it reminds me, we got to really got to release a video on like chess etiquette at a chess board because there are definitely some things that are like cool and not mm. cool. And you gotta like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Be careful. Yeah. No arrows, well, guys. No arrows <laughs> over the board. <laughs> But um, I feel like the, the etiquette will definitely evolve with this new set of demographics uh, that are out there. You know, it won't just be the handshake. It'll be all kinds of interesting, subtle things that, um, you know, will, will change uh, the way we play the game. Um, you know, and there's so many things that have already changed in my lifetime. Um, and I thought I'd just run it off. And maybe you can add it to... Um, so one thing that I think doesn't have anything to do with demographics, but has to do with just the evolution of computer technology is back in the day, there was a real hero worship thing going on uh, w with the top players in the world, especially let's call it like a Soviet pantheon. There were like certain gods that you bowed down to and basically you didn't question their judgment for the most part. Um, now with computers, you got every anybody can say, "Oh, you know, Alakine played this horrible move," you know, right. and and I see that on Twitter all the time. It's just like people criticizing, you know, the old books and stuff, being like, "Oh, these fools didn't know what they were talking about. What a terrible book!" You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I don't know. You know, my my old sense of the hierarchy in my mind is like, you can't talk that way. <laughs> You're not qualified to talk that way. But so right, there's a sense of a hierarchy. Uh, in the game that uh, is diminished very much. So it's still a little bit there, but that's really changed. Um, you know, I, when a thing that is indicative of a change, it's really interesting about demographics, I think is, you know, when I was a kid, Kostya, there was the Soviets were definitely setting the culture. And so for example, even when I played in, the U.S. junior events like the closed and whatever. It was all these Russian Jewish kids that had come over, immigrant kids. And so, for example, we had what we what I'd call draw culture, whereas if you could prearrange draws or there would be like a draw off or a move 10 or 12. And it was a sign of like respect or something. Um, and that's changed dramatically. And Proust, you know, our friend David Proust was really one of the first ones to get very angry about. It. I mean, he went on, he went on a militant mission starting around 2004 and he was calling people out, man. He was flame throwing these people and uh, and the people didn't understand it. They're just like, what? This is always the way we've done it. You know, we don't even understand what you're talking about, David. Um, and so that what to me was an interesting indicator of how things might come right like um that evolution happens and it made a lot of people angry and it shifted but the culture would definitely shifted there's no question about it you know it, it shifted dramatically on that issue um and then like a new chess etiquette around just say draw offers and what it means to draw the game early yada yada that all changed um and you know, I now that I'm the old guy, very much so, like, I just imagine, you know, maybe I'll be the one who's really upset <laughs> at the kids, you know, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, I could say more, but Kostya, what are some of your, in your lifetime, which is, oh, your young life, Kostya, what are the things that you've observed that have changed? Um, there's there's quite a bit. I mean, there's also a bunch of stuff to kind of um, pick up on uh, of what you said. Um, so I want to maybe briefly touch on a few things that I kind of like uh, agree with. Um, definitely like the introduction of the computer. I mean, just completely changed everything. Now everyone thinks they have like a clue about like what's going on in the game. And it's really mm -hmm. easy to like criticize players. Whereas I think like, okay, number one, if you analyze old books and like old notations, instead of criticizing them for like mistakes, I would say like, we should be amazed when they get it right. Uh, especially like a lot of like Fisher's games, I thought his analysis was like fantastic. And I would run it through the engine and like, just see if, mm. if it was actually like, if he was correct, like all the calculations he was doing. Um, so I think like people deserve credit, you know, they actually come up with something that stands like the test mm -hmm. of time. Um, and yeah, for sure, like now that we're observing these tournaments all the time, it's so easy to see like who blundered where and like what kind of like silly mistakes players are making. Um, so that's definitely become kind of a trope, like amateurs making fun of the best players in the world for like <laughs> missing, you know, things and like heavy time pressure or like what have you. Um, mm. The other thing I don't think you mentioned much that I think has already changed before the pandemic is just uh -huh. like the increase, number one, of cheating, but also cheating accusations. Because this is something Absolutely. that started like before the pandemic, I think for a few years now, I feel right. like there's always some kind of commotion. Someone is always like suspicious of someone else. People are like uh -huh. tracking like who's going to the bathroom uh, right? Uh, and how many times and stuff. Um, and yeah, I remember like seeing lots of threads like, oh, my opponent went to the bathroom 20 times. Like, is he definitely cheating? <laughs> like, And then they like, you know, post the game and people are like analyzing it. And it's um, yeah. Yeah. So. That is something I think we should definitely be, you know, try to be careful about because it's like, I mean, I don't know, again, it's kind of this culture of um, innocent before proven guilty, but um, also something to watch out for. And yeah, I mean, if your opponent is being super suspicious during the game and it's like you think they're like checking their phone or like, you know, you see them with like a device or something, the best thing to do actually is just go to the TD and just say like, you know, just tell them your concerns. but. Yeah, don't make like a huge like public thing about it because that's how. Well, not, not only that, I'll say you know one thing that changes for me is I was in that I was in a situation before the pandemic where my opponent was leaving the board frequently on his move, and it's unnerving. Whether you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be thinking about whether the guy's cheating or not. <laughs> That'll just throw you totally on tilt, man. <laughs> You're thinking about all kinds of things you shouldn't be thinking about. Um, and that's definitely part of the evolution of chess culture. You just, it, there's no longer a sense of, um, well, yeah, there, there's just this sense of this other thing in the room that's kind of looking over you. Or if you're playing a game, for example, my games will be broadcast live. And then you know that there's going to be somebody there with their computer analyzing your moves. And it's a little bit even in the back of your head. Um, another thing along those lines, uh, Peter Stidler was talking about this on the Perpetual Chess podcast. Uh, and this is something I've definitely observed is back in the day after a hard fought game didn't matter when it finished you would go and you would analyze with your opponent 
And you talk about some of the things you know that you saw during the game. And it could last 10 minutes. It could last a couple hours, this analysis session. That's where a lot of us really got good, honestly, were those analysis sessions. It was great to, you know, hang out with maybe a stronger player or just hear somebody else's, how they saw the game. And now with the computer, there's kind of a sense among even strong players of like, well, you know, uh, I, I'm just going to end up looking on the computer right away anyway, <laughs> which isn't how I do it. But I know that there are many players who do it that way. And that's led to the demise of the culture of looking at the game after. And it was kind of like, I'd say, let's say 10, 10 years ago, but definitely 20 years ago, it was a, a social expectation that you went and looked at the game after, you know, you took a little set or something, went to the Skittles room and then, and then other players would come watch and they would start talking and, you know, you get a whole scene going on and it was great. It was great. And that, but that's, I think for the most part gone, I think that's for the most part gone. Um, yeah. So that's another change. Yeah. Well, it's like these guys, they want to be efficient. You only have so much time after the game. And so they probably just want to spend like all their time preparing for the next game. So their seconds, you know, they just like do the work for them. They're like, oh, yeah, on this and this and this, like you missed this, this and this. Right. And then they're like, OK, on to, <laughs> on to the next game. Um, and it's totally with you. But like, OK, in the United States, we also have to say just like the typical schedule of two rounds a day just makes it impossible to like do a postmortem and then have time to like rest and recover for the next game. So. In Europe, it's different because you have one round a day. And um, that was one of my favorite things about uh, the Reykjavik Open is that there was definitely a culture there, um, even as recently as like 2018, 2019, of after mm -hmm. the game going to like the cafe. It's like right next to the cafe or bar. They have like a Skittles area. You can get something to eat or drink. And they have a bunch of boards there and you can analyze um, with your opponent. And um, and people do it. And a lot, of, a lot of times you see like a super, like you'll see Shirov sitting there analyzing with his opponent. Shout out to Shirov, the guy like loves analyzing games. He'll actually like walk around and like kibitz on other people games. And I mean, it's just like incredible. Um, so that's like a very cool thing. And yeah, I've definitely learned quite a bit from some of those analysis um, sessions after a game. Like I played a GM or I am and then we look at the game and then I see the difference between um, what I saw and what they saw. And it's, it's just so instructive for me just to see like, wow, like they didn't care about this line. They thought this line was important. Like. That was always some of the most useful um, feedback I could get. So I would encourage you guys to try and do a, a postmortem with your opponent, even though um, you know the engine is just going to show you the answer later anyway. But you can definitely learn from each other's ideas. You know, another interesting thing about that is, yeah, chess in the United States has always been two rounds a day. But even back in the day, I've got to say, back in the day, it was much slower of time controls. Now we're doing basically a normalized time control of 90 minutes plus 30 second increment. And back in the day, you would almost always have a second time control, often a third time control. So it'd be like uh, two hours for 40 moves and you get another hour for the next 20 moves and then 30 minutes sudden death, something like that. I would say that was like a very typical time control and even then, yeah. even then, you people would go and analyze after. Um, and that brings me, I think, maybe to what might be the biggest change in chess culture is that 
what was happening before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic accelerated it, is that chess has become faster and maybe it's simply become an online phenomenon. So, for example, I'm this old guy and I'm going back to play this tournament. And for me, that's real chess is the over the board chess. But for this new group of people who's never even played over the board chess, like DM Hokey, why, why for them is over the board chess real chess? Why does that need to be real chess for them? And for example, my, in my little framework, uh, if there's a, an important rating, it's really only the FIDE rating, or if you're not that high rated, it's the USCF rating. Those are the only ratings that are important. But now, you know, it's this really interesting thing. You hang out on chess.com and, and, you know, I did that whole ridiculous 2700 quest and I'm sitting there on an analysis board with Eugene Perlstein the other day. And the poor guy's got a rating of like 2,500. And I'm like, I'm just a gorilla compared to this dude. Or you see like David Bruce's rating, he's fallen back into like 2350, he's stinking up the dojo, you know, he won't fix it. <laughs> and it's like, there's a certain sense in which if, if you leave it that way long enough, you just play online long enough, that will become like the rating. Like what is your like little blitz rating on chess.com or Lee chess or something like that. And I think for us here at the dojo, that's not the reality we promote or would like to have, but I think we have to acknowledge like, like when I say we're going back to real chess, I don't know if that's the real chess anymore. Maybe it's not. I'd like to believe it is, but I'm not sure, Costa. I don't know. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this so we could compare notes afterwards. You know? Well, yeah, it's a good, very interesting question. There's a couple of differences, I think, right now between online chess and over-the-board chess in terms of the prestige. Number one, you don't have like huge prizes for online tournaments like you do for like the World Open, Chicago Open, like these huge events, um, these big opens like all over the world. Um the only like big money events are the ones for professional players, and it's likely just because like we have no perfect solution for cheating. And the assumption is if we have huge open tournaments open to everyone, there people are just going to find all kinds of ways to mm. cheat, right? If we give them a big enough financial incentive. Whereas over the board, it's like, I mean, if you cheat in an over the board tournament, you're there in person, like you're taking on a lot of risk um, to do that. Uh, even uh, well, regardless, people have still tried. Um, but uh, but yeah, the other thing is that there's not also like official uh, titles like Grandmaster, Master, at least they have some online titles already. Like I know FIDE mm -hmm. has been trying to do like their online arena thing, but it feels right. very shady and very sketchy because uh, they're I mean, I saw an ad where apparently like to get the online IM title, your rating needs to be 1700. So it just seems like very strange. So they're just giving it out at that point. And like GM was something like 2100. Yeah, so it's very like, I don't really I don't really get it. Uh, it's confusing. Um, well, maybe this could be actually here's I, I just came up with this now. I kind of like this comparison, you know, uh, for example, in the finance world, we have national currencies, dollar, euro, you know, yen and then the, let's call those the traditional currencies, which are comparable to say a FIDE rating or USCF <laughs> rating. And then you have all these cryptocurrencies that are coming up, right? And no one knows what to bet on or what to buy. 
but they seem like a viable alternative. Maybe we don't know. And in a way that's maybe comparable to my just emotional feel to this, where to me, the currency is like a FIDE rating or like you're saying something like a GM title. Uh, but all of these other things are coming on board. And, and then some people like with the all cryptocurrencies, they have very strong allegiances. Like some people are like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin, you know, um, and some of them might even have started up as a joke, but then turn into a real thing, you know, um, and like as, as somebody who, you know, and just dealing with money, I have no idea. I have no idea if those things are going to become a real deal. No idea. In a similar way, I don't know whether like the Lee Chess rating is something going to be something or the chess.com rating. No idea. No idea. But I think that, well, I, I, I know pretty certainly that when people out there for the last year who have committed themselves to this game in record numbers, giving a lot of toil to their own self-improvement, they, of course, have just been focused on those crypto ratings. <laughs> the crypto ratings, Ghost. I just created that. They've been focused on the crypto ratings, and why not? Of course, they are. Yeah. No, that's a that's a really funny comparison because um, there are some similarities. Because um, yeah, it's. I mean, you know, like the argument always goes like crypto. It's like not really based on anything, but neither is like regular money. We just kind of accept that it's money. Um, but like the system of crypto actually makes a lot of sense. Like it has its advantages. It has its like securities and. Um, the idea of the blockchain definitely feels like kind of like the future and seems like a much better way of doing things. And maybe the online ratings are a much better way of doing things, because like, after all, you play more games online. It is kind of a uh, it gives you more quantity of uh, games to work with in terms of representing your your strength. Um, it's still very different to traditional chess, but like, yeah, in some ways it could totally take over as being what we count as um as real chess. And the other part of the metaphor that I hadn't realized before this, of course, is that um, when you're dealing in national currencies, if I want to send money to Europe, I have to pay some kind of fee. If I want to exchange money, I have to pay some kind of fee. So there's like a, a pain barrier when I want to deal with that kind of stuff. And similarly, or even more so with over the board chess, it's expensive and it's time consuming. Uh, I'm going to have to go to a hotel. Uh, I have GM privilege, so I don't have to pay an entry fee. Maybe I get a small appearance fee. But I know as when I was an IM, I was paying a lot of money to like attend these events and yada, yada. And so that's the other thing about online chess. It's more egalitarian and it's just easier, much easier to do. Yeah, 100% more accessible. Um, but if we can't solve the cheating problem, I think people will never take it seriously. So I think that is kind of a serious issue about it. Because I, I just feel like as soon as you start giving out big prizes and like real titles uh, are made available online, I think that will definitely encourage people to cheat and it'll be very hard to catch everyone. You'll have false accusations. So like, I don't know, that has we have to come up with some kind of like real, real solution for that. Maybe all the official events... You, you just have to play with like two cameras. So that lowers the accessibility, but, you know, increases the security. Like if you want to play in an official event, you got to have a front facing camera and camera behind you. And you got to share your screen the whole time. And that way, OK, it's like very difficult to cheat under those uh, circumstances. 
Um, I don't think it's that hard, buddy. I mean, you just have to hook up some other device that's not in the field of view. Um, I, I feel like cheating in a normal tournament, too. I, I, I don't think it's that hard. I really don't think it's that hard. So, like, to, to cast it, to frame it like it's safe in the over-the-board environment. You know, I mean, Rousey's took it over the top with, with like the phone, but the thing is like the instruments are getting even smaller than the phone. And all you need, if you're a reasonably strong player is just some hints once in a while. You just need a hint. You just need somebody to tell you to think about this move or, or somebody throws you a sign for like N for night, or I don't know. <laughs> you don't need much for it to radically change the game. So I don't know. I, I don't feel that over the board tournaments are safe from it either. I mean, I get it. It, it feels a lot safer. And frankly, th that's the other thing we got to talk about culture because we've seen at the dojo and I've seen as a, a, you know, as a teacher, we had a great incident just recently where I was teaching uh, and we were just analyzing and my student was cheating with the computer and it's become so prevalent for people to cheat who aren't criminals. These are not criminal people. These are people who can't resist. <laughs> and I think once you can't, once you have that culture of you can't resisting, then you think everybody else can't resist. And then you will feel entitled to do it yourself. And so why not then do it in a regular tournament? You know? Oh man. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's a big question of chess culture is, Obviously, we've had the during the pandemic, we've had the question of how do sites like chess.com and Lee Chess crack down on the cheaters? Uh, the overall answer has to be at this point that they haven't done that much, right? They haven't done that much and they have not been effective about it. Um, but it's and it, that's all going to bleed into the over the that's going to be a continuing thing that they're going to work on. But it's going to bleed into the over the board experience mm -hmm. for sure. I feel I don't even. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there is a suggestion that people could play online, but like in person at some kind of local club. And that's actually how they used to do it for the U.S. Uh, chess league. Right. Where to play in the U.S. chess league, you had to play publicly and with some kind of recognized arbiter like they needed uh, an actual uh, arbiter's title from i think either fide or uscf there was some requirement that was still i feel like wasn't perfect because in theory you know the arbiter could just be in on it if it's just someone that everyone knows on the team and that's like the team could still be like cheating but if everyone is like playing in public or if you imagine like a big space where you know it's like 50 people playing a chess tournament they're all on their computers um, but they're all being, I guess, like observed to some sense, then, yeah, that would be really hard to pull off cheating uh, there. Um, so maybe there are some some hybrid opportunities, indeed. But Kosti, I say my memory of that, we played U.S. Chess League. Uh, we played the Mechanics Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we we're just off on our, I don't know how else you'd organize it too. We were just like off in some little hidden corner of the club with our computer there. And, um, yeah, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to cheat. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. How it was ran, it was still like open, like definitely yeah. less likely if like the whole team has to be kind of like in on it. Um, yeah. And there were some 
cases of cheating in, in the U.S. Chess League, 100. Um, percent yeah. Uh, yeah, I think some kind of like public option could be a really good um, uh, opportunity, or just you know ban all computers. Just that's it. No more <laughs> take Stockfish down. Just just ban it all. That could be another solution. <laughs> I think another thing about culture that it's really a question, a thing about culture is if if the cases of cheating, let's say just online for a moment, if they were few and far between, then you could then what would have happened is we would have radically punished those people. But because it's so prevalent, because the list of people who have done it is so extreme, sites like chess.com have been like, dude, we can't, we can't. And there's no upside for us. There's no upside for us because we're dealing with every time you accuse somebody of cheating, they're going to freak out because they're going to be like, even if they did it, they're going to be like, no, I didn't do it, man. What are you saying? Dude, with my student, ghosted. with my student, I was like, dude, you're obviously cheating. And he was like, no, I'm not. What are you saying? He ended up, then like he ended up admitting it to me, bro. He admitted it to me later. And it was just like, oh, man. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a really interesting problem there. I think everything to do with with culture. Um, and it's funny, too. I In my mind, when I was thinking about this podcast, I was talking about demographics as destiny. And that's definitely true. We could definitely talk about gender and how that might shift things. But gotta say also just technology is destiny like when you look at cheating like the rousey's thing was only possible because the development of the iphone which i remember seeing for the first time in 2007 right without that little phone there's no way there's no way. so it's actually a pretty recent development and people couldn't uh, afford those phones of the general public to like, I don't know, 2010 or something like that. You know? So like that technological shift is something that I think changed everything. And I, like I said, I just assume that all the devices are getting smaller and smaller. Like I think you could probably get a great computer on your Apple watch, dude. Why not? I don't know. Why not? You know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you could. No, I think a lot of the well, a lot of the official FIDE tournaments, like the Olympiad and stuff, they've banned like pens. It's like you can't have your own pen anymore, because I think there's apparently some something you can do with a pen. Um, so, yeah, well, it's going to be different. And then again, it's going to be like a lot more cheating accusations. And um, I mean, already like over the past couple of years, you see people posting their opponents. Uh, accuracy scores, you know, like on Facebook and Twitter mm, and stuff, mm, and they're like, "Oh, my opponent has, right. you know, ninety-seven percent accuracy score." <laughs> they like yeah. post the game, and it's just like, that's just gonna keep happening. And <laughs> I don't know, it's uh, feels kind of slimy, but what can you do? Well, cause let me just shift a little bit. Um, do you feel? that chess culture heretofore was especially masculine, just given that everybody was dudes, or did it not feel that way to you? Um, what do you mean? What do you mean by like masculine as it comes to like a culture? Well, you know, it's, you know, fair enough. It's an interesting, <laughs> it's a hard enough thing to define what, what we mean by that. But I think, um, 
I've done a number of activities in my life that were mostly dudes. Like, for example, uh, I've done a lot of bike riding and that's almost all there, there's women in there, but it's, it's a largely dudes. And, um, I don't, usually I don't think of, I, I haven't witnessed a lot of what I'd call bro culture within the chess community, but there is some weird. Yeah. Like there's some, yeah, there's definitely some, well, it's interesting. Like one of the things about demographics and, and gender is like the Russian players, especially back in the day, but even now, like they're very aware of chess as like a masculine game and it, it being a, a kind of warfare that is uh dark and dirty and kind of full of sexual innuendo anyway <laughs> to have a different sense of it. I, growing up I didn't come up with that until I started playing with them and then actually when I played with them it was like right this is a whole nother level this is a whole other way of thinking about the game um yeah so that's something different I feel with the eastern uh, east eastern european countries in terms of they definitely see it as a masculine game um even though there's a lot of the most successful women players come out of eastern bloc countries uh still um but i guess you know it, it's got to uh, have amounted to something it's it would it's it would seem a strange statement to say well we have had for at least jesse's whole lifetime every chess tournament being basically 99% dudes. And to say that that culture isn't masculine would be kind of, it'd be like, no, obviously it had to be. Feels you like might not have, be, yeah, over yeah, time. You might, you, you might not have noticed it and that might actually be the thing that'll change. Like maybe we'll get some interesting changes just in the fact that women maybe will come to the game. I don't know, we're gonna see. But that's part of my question. Like maybe that's just a blind spot uh, that I have thinking that it's not a masculine game, but it, it just, you just step back a second. You're like a oh, 99% dudes. It's gotta be, you know, gotta be. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that kind of makes sense. And I don't know. I mean, it can create problems. It's um, definitely there's like, you know, we see like misogyny and this kind of thing in the chess world. I don't know if it's like more or less compared to like other communities, like, Chess is always compared with like poker and like esports. Um, it's actually one part of chess culture we haven't really talked about yet that it's yeah just becoming more and more of an esport, and that's how people see it um, mm -hmm. for for better or worse. Um, and uh, yeah, I think in all these communities, there's definitely like issues <laughs> surrounding uh, surrounding that. So it's hard to say like how much chess is better or or worse. Um, in terms of like, like the toxicity in chess, I honestly feel like it's less than in other spaces. And I mean, I've been like a chess player my whole life, so it's hard for me to judge exactly. But I do feel like in general, chess community is like more welcoming um, than compared to um, not necessarily other communities, but just like I think people can be really toxic in other environments and um yeah, I don't know. I've always actually seen the chess community as being one of the, the nicer ones, despite having its um, its issues, of course, and its bad apples. Well, I think one of the things that's weird about it from our perspective, Kosi, is like when that both of us are kind of like 
like even though the hierarchy has been lessened through the advent of computers, this hierarchy in the chess world still kind of exists. And we, I think, are treated, we might not notice it, but we're treated differently when we come to a tournament and, you know, just people are are welcoming. They're like, oh, do you need a place to stay? Do you need something? Blah, blah, blah. Or they'll kind of want to talk to you a little bit. Um, and I know that for people who are just starting out, whether it's in the YouTube channel or you go to a tournament and they can be rough. I think when you're at the bottom of this supposed totem pole that kind of exists in people's minds or doesn't exist in some people's minds. And then, you know, there's a real toxicity in any totem pole, right? Whether it's chess or another culture, you're going to have uh, a hierarchy and it's going to feel like somebody's pushing you down. You know, like, you don't know what you're talking about, Kostya. <laughs> you know? But that is the cool yeah. thing about chess is that um, I think you made this point, like, ultimately, there's very little gatekeeping because it's all decided over the board. No, absolutely. Like, if you're yes. a good player, like, no one can deny you anything <laughs> in chess. And I think being good actually earns you a lot of respect. Like, one example I think about, I don't know if it's correct or not, it's just an idea, but, like, I think Fisher has or gets a lot of respect from like Russian players and people from the Soviet Union, um, mm. even the ones that were like playing against them. And you would think he would be like hated, like a huge rival. But I feel like they just had such a tremendous respect for his play. Like they had uh, kind of like no choice but to uh, but to like him, at least for his his chess playing. Right. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the nice thing is that like. Yeah, you don't need any kind of like special invites. You definitely need uh, financial opportunities to like really play a lot of chess and travel to tournaments and stuff. But yeah, ultimately, if you have the skill, it's like the the path is there for you. I wonder too, because you know, it's actually thing about the the Russian players now. Like, I think there's this. You could probably speak to this better than I can, but there's this thing where they were so dominant for so long and honestly if it weren't for magnus they would probably still have been dominant all those years uh and when i say soviet i, I mean you know like say topolov is still part of the eastern Bloc tradition um and now that they have lost that center of gravity, it's not like they don't, there's still a big center of gravity there, but right, like this huge explosion of the game, which we're going to see in the next couple of years to what extent it's changed even more than before the pandemic, but definitely even before the pandemic, right? We have all this huge uh, communities that are so big, especially like, actually, when you think about, when I think about chess explosion, I think about India in the last year. When you look just at like the, the Twitch streamers from India who are doing their thing and the numbers of people that they're getting on their Twitch streams, just been like, Oh man, what a huge number of people. That's just, the game is exploding. Anyways, when I think about those guys and I wonder what kind of resentment they're going to be feeling. Uh, and I think a symbolic aspect of, of that is coming out now where this really interesting, bizarre psychological thing where Nepo can't play under the Russian flag because of the Russian cheating in other sports, mm -hmm. you know, man, that's like, that's pretty intense, man, to not like have 
your flag there. And I, Oh, I think there's deep resentment there and it has, you know, so many levels, but the interesting one to me, the, the like deeper one is like the sense of chess being taken away, right. Taken away from the Eastern Bloc and moved elsewhere mm. that, you know, from a uni, like when I was a kid, let's just say it was a, even though Fisher had happened, it was still a unipolar universe. There was one center of gravity. <laughs> that was it. And now it's like, Oh man, it's everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Interesting. Well, I, I saw some people saying the Nepo thing. I mean, it's just like a more like ceremonial uh, in terms of punishment. It's not like a real, it's just like, what does it matter? Like it doesn't um, actually hurt him in, in any way. It just seems like kind of like a symbolic slap on the wrist or honestly, I didn't even get it. Like <laughs> just, yeah, it, I don't know. It's kind of hard to understand. Oh, I think it's, um, I think it's very significant in a lot of ways. Like, first of all, there's a great, uh, documentary. I think it's on Netflix called Ikaros, Icarus. And, um, it's about the Soviets cheating and that, uh, Olympic cheating that they've been doing forever in a very aggressive way has led to this ban. They of course deny it like all cheaters. They deny it vociferously. Um, so there's that denial of, and then feeling like they're being unfairly um, impinged upon. And then I got to say too, if I, let's just say, I, I am not like the world's most patriotic dude, but if I had to, you know, if I made it somehow <laughs> to some top stage, even if it was the world championship, and then I couldn't like have a flag. No, that's a serious thing, man. That's very psychological. And, uh, and I think for Russians, it's like, what, this is our guy. This is like, he doesn't really have a chance of against Magnus, but at least let him, let him show the Soviet colors, man. Let him show the Soviet school of chess or something. Yeah. I think it's a, it's kind of, it's symbolic at least of the shift for me, uh, away from the Soviet union and the Soviet cheating thing too, which goes into all these other questions of cheating, which is, you know, so dark and hard to understand. And, you know, when we're talking about cheating, we're talking about online cheating, but of course the Soviets, and then perhaps probably also later, just the way that the uh, KGB evolved in the FSB, it didn't really change that much in terms of how they operate, you know? So like that level of cheating is its own, you know, whole dark thing. And like, one, one question of cheating, this is another thing about chess culture that I assume is going to change, is people taking drug enhancement. Uh, you know, people swear by modafinil. I don't know. You know <laughs> people have all kinds of – but I think, you know, if, if, if I was some guy in the FSB, I'd be like, okay, Nepo, we've developed these drugs, buddy, and here we go. <laughs> Here's your chance, buddy. Sounds like yeah. a, a Marvel movie. Um, I mean, okay, I want to stick on this Nepo thing because, yeah. like – I mean, I guess, okay, now what I don't understand, it's like if it's meant to punish like the Russian government, because I, I, I'm definitely going to watch it, Chris, because I don't know a ton about that story. Um, I mean, it sounds like they're punishing Nepo. It's like, what did, if it's a punishment to Nepo, let's, like, I don't know if Nepo cares about this or this sanction or not. Let's say he does. Uh -huh. Like, what's the point uh -huh. of punishing him? I mean, like, chess is not even in the Olympics. It's like, I don't well, I think, okay, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know all the fine details, but it's roughly like this. Fide forever, forever. 
decades now has been trying to get chess to be an Olympic sport. Right. And it's this precisely this Olympic ban on the Soviets that's created this little drama where he can't use his flag. Right. So, um, yeah, that's where it's coming from. And, and does he care? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm he probably pretends he doesn't care. I, I don't know how you, how you wouldn't care if I, you'd feel singled out. You'd be like, I didn't cheat. Why are you doing this to me? Right. You know, I'm just some dude. Right. Like in a lot of Russians, what they love, Russians love to say is they say, Oh, I'm, I'm not political. That's the Russian key line. Almost every Russian I meet says that, you know, oh, I'm not political. Everybody's political, buddy. But you know, that's, the thing. that's the way the Russians like to talk about it, to get out of it. Interesting. Huh. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know, kind of a weird thing. I wish them the best. Um, anyway, people are asking whether you can actually dope in chess. I mean, I remember seeing some article on Chess Base saying that they did a study comparing, I think it was like Adderall to, uh, to caffeine, and basically the study concluded that there wasn't um, any real difference uh, in the benefit. Like caffeine is about as helpful as taking Adderall. Um, just very anecdotally, what I remember from reading that thing was that they said that like uh, people who are on Adderall or something similar, uh, they just got lost in thought. So like they might have improved their like focus for the chess game, but their time management was horrible because they would get lost in thought. They would spend too long on many moves. And so ultimately their performance didn't really improve that much in uh, in a chess game. Um, so oh, well, the other thing with, with Modafinil, I thought they proved it. It basically was 10 to 20 percent improvement. But and, caffeine and is also like 10 10 percent. Yeah, I'd be interested in a deeper study of the caffeine about the temperature. I, I, I will say this for myself, for example, if they banned caffeine, I don't know if it would actually impinge on my chest, but I do know that it would affect my psychological uh, well-being in the game because yeah, I would never play again if they banned caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it too. There. So one of my few pleasures left in life is to uh, either analyze chess or play chess with a nice cup of coffee. There's not much better that I get, you know, right now. <laughs> That's the state of my life right there, Christian. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's better than that. Um, I talk, I have a neurologist friend and I talked to him about the modafinil and I was going to try it. I was, you know, I would try, uh, you know, I'll try anything once. And, but he was, he talked me out of it by saying that it will help you because what it does is it makes you really interested in whatever it is you're doing. So they would lose on time because they were so interested in what they were doing. Um, so their calculation got much better. Their vision got much better, but they sometimes got so deep into it that they, you know, lost sight of the clock, but even so they're, um, it, they're they definitely improved their performance. Anyways, he was trying, he talked me out of it by saying, that it does something to your receptors, you know? So like after you take the modafinil, you'll be at a lower level than you were before. Something like that. Like it burns the, burns the receptors. Most you don't do it. Yeah. Um, interesting. Well, Jesse, we have, I think about like maybe five minutes left. We got some questions sure. from Twitter. Maybe we can yeah, do, let's like do it. a rapid fire. Yeah. Sure. You could just give a quick, your quick take. So first one from Scott. Uh, is chess culture similar or different in major chess playing nations like China, India, 
this former uh, Soviet bloc and uh, the mm-hmm. West. I, w- I mean, yeah, we touched on it a little bit before. I feel like the uh, the Soviet bloc countries, um, it, it's a very, you know, it's it's a very, um, it's a respected part of the culture. It's something that no one's going to think of you as a nerd if you do it. It's a very, you know, if you're a chess champion, you're kind of this very masculine, macho dude. And that's the way they see themselves. Whereas here in the States, I was never, no one ever walked down the schools of the high school with me and being like, Oh, that's one macho dude. No, that's not the way I was seeing coach. That wasn't the way it was, nor were the people who were attracted to chess in the United States. We were, you know, we were kind of like the D and D bros, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, back right. in the day It was a totally different uh, group of kids who got attracted to the game in the first place anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the interesting questions going forward, Scott, is just uh, with these uh, this community in India and China, they are their their numbers are essentially, I think, just like the, the numbers in Ch- India of people playing now. We'll see how it is over the board, but they are so extreme that it just like it overwhelms the rest of the West and the, and the Soviet bloc just in terms of sheer numbers, I think. That's my sense right now of the numbers. And, you know, we'll see how that develops in the next year. But it is an extreme amount of people that have taken up the game. Correct me if I'm wrong. India got their first GM in like 1980-something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. Wasn't it Anand? Wasn't Anand the first? No. No, I don't think so. No, it wasn't the first. I'm going to guess Barua. I can't pronounce the guy's name, but I think that guy. Somebody like that. Yeah. Um, But... But it was very recent. Oh, Barua. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it was very recent, like 1980s. Uh, um, oh, I called it. That was just a guess, Kostya, I guess. But no, some good, chat is good stuff. me. <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> wasn't sure. Um, but now they have, I think, close to something like 70. So they're like, uh, they're, uh, yeah, just way up. Uh, Anand, yeah. of course, uh, like hugely responsible for the chess boom. Um, like yeah. I believe Ramesh was saying that he became a professional because of Anand's success. Um, maybe I'm getting all this wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I remember Ramesh saying that Anand's success was very like influential for him personally. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, the Fisher Boom, I think, had, I mean, uh, tons of players started uh, playing. I don't know if it produced a ton of GMs, but now India has this, like, uh, almost like their own chess school where they, I think they have like a big system, like where they have just a lot of tournaments, uh, a lot of um, juniors and a lot of their players are just like sponsored by the government and and companies there. I feel like more than the U S does, as far as I know, like we don't have the top 10, 20 players in the U S getting sponsored by like companies and being paid salaries and getting their like expenses paid and things like this. I think you have to say that uh, Sarah One is a product, Fisher Boom, Christensen, the Fermian, uh, all those guys were products of the Fisher Boom for sure. Yeah, they wouldn't have been playing without the Fisher Boom. Kosi, mm. we had a question here. I'll ask you since you, you put me on the spot. Uh, this is from Shula von Kaisa about the chess culture of achieving equality for black. How do you feel about that? Has that become a thing in the recent years? Yeah, that was an interesting question. Well, I think it was, um, is it, why has the culture of trying to equalize with black become disgusting? So 
kind of an assumption hidden in the question. I think it's, I clarify, I think he's referring to the fact that, yeah, now nowadays most of the top players, they just try to equalize with black. They're playing the Berlin, the Petrov, the Queen's Gambit declined. Uh, I remember I was very sad when Rajabov switched from his King's Indian to just playing like the QGD every game, then not going to uh-huh. the same. I was very sad when this happened. <laughs> um, I mean, it's understandable, and I don't think fans are particularly disgusted by it. Ultimately, I do think it's really up to white these days to dictate how much action they want in a game more than it is um, up to black. So if someone wants to take a risk in the Jess game, I think it's going to be the person who moves first. Um, and I think people do notice like when someone is making like really quick draws with white um, versus uh, uh, someone who is always playing for the win. And then, yeah, you know, the results uh, are, are whatever. But um, I think you can definitely tell by like the opening choices, like who is definitely playing um, for the advantage from the get go and who is really just trying to play it like super safe. Oh, apparently people saying Anand was the first GM. So double correction there. <laughs> Well, it was, I, I was right. There was something like Bruin. Vish Chess is on it over here. Um, I, I think um, one thing to add, I'll put it just for my own context. I, I think with the computer, the thing, it's not so much about a quality, I would say, but like it's really, it's hard to go against the computer when you're doing your opening prep. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, the Benoni has really fallen out of favor because the computer hates the Benoni. I mean, despises the Benoni. So it's really hard psychologically to then play it because you're just like, oh, the computer says I'm lost, so I'm lost. And there's, it's not just the Benoni, but there's a number of ways to say get a Benoni structure or to get a structure that has less space. And when the computer tells you that, it's, it's really hard. And of course it ends up affecting your game. And the computer, you know, it's, it's been doing this for well over 20 years now, but it's affected the way we think about the game. And, you know, it's, I grew up talking about whites a little bit better, whites clearly better. And now you ask players and they'll say, oh, it's like 0.4, you know, yeah. They'll put it in the computer terms. So they've already switched their thinking uh, and the values of the computer, uh, especially like respect for the bishop space, those are coming through in the way people are playing. Uh, and so to go against the computer is partly why people are then, I think, especially the top players following some kind of, let's call it drawing variation, which honestly, I'm not sure ultimately will pay off in terms of statistical results, you know, just because you play that way, you know? Yeah. I mean, we saw Magnus switch to a super dynamic Sveshnikov repertoire for the World Championship match against Caruana, which typically right. World Championship matches have this culture 100%. Like any loss right. is such a blow that you really try to be super solid with black. So he completely switched it up, took on a much more dynamic set of positions, and I would say really improved his chess. Like the next year he was completely like winning everything, and even for Magnus, like just looking like uh, invincible for him. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think... I think the computer is certainly going to affect things now of course we have like the new ai engines that are suggesting like h4 a4 mm-hmm. a5 h5 in every position and that has certainly affected yeah. the openings that are being played um so yeah actually a lot of stuff especially that's changed over the board in terms of the opening choice um and people now 
I attribute it to Carlson actually getting like the really safe position from the opening and then just trying to play a really long 80 move game and um, trying to grind people out. But that's definitely something that feels like has changed in, in recent years, too. Mm hmm. Um, another one, Kosia, uh, uh, is this uh, Al-Qaeda writes that uh, how can the U.S. build a chess culture when most FIDE GM, GM tournaments are in Europe? And I want to just say that's been a shift um, that's happened uh, in the last 20 years where we do now have many norm events. It used to be back in the day, it was very difficult. And Proust was be organizing GM norm tournaments in the bottom of church basements, man, that we were, we were playing in the basements of some strange places. We were doing it back in the day. Uh, but for example, I'm playing in a GM norm tournament in DC in two weeks. Coach is playing one in a month and there are many, and a lot of it has to do with uh, more people involved in the game in the United States and also more money, especially with the St. Louis chess club. Yeah. Um, there is a little bit of, yeah, I think you're right. Like, it, I think it used to be harder. Nowadays, there's definitely a lot more norm events um, in the U.S. than there used to be. Uh, I remember when I was maybe 21, 2200, I wasn't really thinking about norm events yet. But everywhere I saw, I would always read like, oh, yeah, if you want a norm, you have to go to Europe. Or like, if you really want to make IM or GM, got to go to Europe, got to play in like Hungary or some of these places. Mm -hmm. with like, um, just tournaments like every week, Czech Republic, another one has like, a tournament every week over the summer that's like a nine round event um and now it's gotten a lot better although i feel like fida is always introducing rules to make it harder like so first they made that rule where like you have to play some foreign players in in the event can't all be mm -hmm. all from one country i don't know if that was specifically anti-us or, or whatever but recently last couple of years they introduced a rule that one of your gm norms has to be a six-day event just out of nowhere they just introduced this rule one of the norms has to be a oh. six-day event. And that seems like an anti-US thing because we're the only place that has like five-day norm events. All over uh, the world, most of the norm events are like nine days long, right? Because they just do one round a day. We're the only place that does like two rounds a day for norm events. Maybe uh, Canada as well. Um, but they don't have as many norm events up there. Um, and uh, yeah, so now one of the GM norms has to be uh, six days or more. <laughs> so, so good luck. <laughs> Yeah, and shout out also to Charlotte. Chess Gaines is mentioning Charlotte, and I'm, I'll probably play a, a, an event down there as well. Uh, very surprising too, Charlotte. Just it just started, and it's like boom, we got a second big U.S. chess center where norm events are happening. A lot of them too. A lot of them. Yeah, Charlotte Absolutely. is doing some some great stuff um, with the norm events. Um, so yeah, uh, all right, Jesse. I think that maybe yeah. wraps it up. Yeah. And hopefully I'll just end in saying uh, at some point it would be fun to do this in a bit. I don't know if it's six months, a year, but just kind of reflect on what over the board chess looks like, feels like. And is it is it number one? Is it like the currency of the chess world or have the cryptocurrencies of Lee Chess and Chess.com ratings? Have those taken over as the standards for what people are trying to achieve? Right. Like when, when people think of chess achievement, are they thinking of a chess.com rating or are they thinking of like a FIDE rating with a title attached to their name? Right. That's part of the question going forward, I think. Oh, and real quick, people were asking, like, what are some um, etiquette things that online players might not know? Let me mention it here so that it gets a wide, a wide okay, reach. Yeah. Guys, I think the biggest difference that might screw someone over is touch move. 
you know, online, you can click on a piece, pick it up, move it around, uh, draw arrows, do whatever you want. Over the board, guys, if you touch a piece, you are committed to moving it. And if you put it on a square and let go, that's your move. So <laughs> be very careful. Don't be like just moving your pieces all around because you will get called on it. If your piece is like off the center of the square and you want to adjust it, you just have to say adjust verbally out loud mm. so your opponent hears it so they understand and then move it back and then it's um, very clear. Yeah, which piece do you touch first to castle? Always go with the king. Um, castling is kind of a king move and if you put your king on g1, like moving two squares, there's no ambiguity there. It's clear what you're trying um, to do compared to if you move the rook um, first. So yeah, no take backs guys and uh, don't touch a piece until you're ready to move it. And hit the clock with the same hand, guys. Hit the clock with the same hand. <laughs> Have some respect for the game. <laughs> well, here's actually, I'll, I'll end an etiquette thing that I can imagine changing. Before, it was very clear with chess etiquette that, uh, and a lot of American players didn't get this, but you are not allowed to offer, first of all, you cannot offer a draw twice. And really, if you're playing a stronger opponent, this is the thing to do with the hierarchy. You don't offer a draw unless you are significantly better. If it's an equal position, just don't, just don't do it. Uh, I've noticed though that that could change with the etiquette. I've noticed that because people don't understand and if enough people don't understand then the culture will just evolve to that point of, you know, not understanding that bit of chess culture. Cause that's really what it is. It's not something that's ever really enforced. Like there has actually been a time I told an arbiter to tell the dude to stop offering me a draw, but you know, <laughs> in general, it's not something that the arbiters in control of. It's a cultural thing about the game. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do another episode on chess etiquette. Actually. I think we could talk a whole yeah. show about it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And if anybody has uh, topics they'd like us to cover, we're trying to do this podcast uh, once a week. If we, if we don't get to it every week, that's okay. But roughly once a week, we'd like to do it. Um, yeah. We'll catch you guys soon. Thanks to everyone for subbing, donating. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys in a bit. Bye.